Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an update on the Climate Superfund Act proposal. Then we hear about the Bethlehem Town Library banning the local peace group over the Palestinian issue. Later on, we have a story about harm reduction with Ed Fox, director of Project Safe Point. After that, Marsha Lazarus brings us a story about ultra marathon running. And we end up with the water song and words from John Amidon at the recent New York Days Peace Walk around Troy. But first, headlines. The Times Union reports that a number of new state laws will take effect in 2024. The minimum wage increase to $15 an hour across the state as of January 1st. The wage will increase to $16 an hour for employees in New York City, Long Island, and Westchester. Freelance workers will have more protections than the enact of the Freelance Isn't Free Act, and the new law requires the use of written contracts and full and timely payment for services at least of at least $800. Another new law raises the legal age to operate ATVs from 10 to 14 years old. The law allows children under 16 to only operate an ATV on lands owned by their parents and under their supervision. A new law increases access to doula services for Medicaid patients, and a new law restricts the ability for utilities to backbill after failing to bill more than two months. Schenectady School Superintendent Annabelle Solar Jr. is a finalist for the top school job in Yonkers. Solar has led Schenectady schools for the last two and a half years. Nearly two years after mobile sports wagering became legal in New York, almost $35 billion has been wagered, with the state receiving more than $11 billion in revenue. The TU reports that the number of people under the age of 25 seeking assistance for gambling problems has spiked, however, since the new law took effect. Ahead of her January 9th State of the State, Governor Hochul announced that she will seek to stop insulin users from having co-payments on their diabetes medication, shield low-income New Yorkers from medical debt collection, and bolster enforcement and prosecution on consumer protection issues. The Gazette reports that shortly after Marion Porterfield was re-elected unanimously as president of the Schenectady City Council. She stated that the seven Democratic Party council members hope to move beyond the past months of infighting and racial tensions that divided the all-democratic body and work more collaboratively. That's it for headlines. So with the start of a new state legislative year, groups are making the final push to get their issues included in Governor Hochul's proposed budget, which is due to be released on January 16th. 
Mark talked with Ann Rabe of NYPIRG about the proposed Climate Superfund Act, which would raise $3 billion a year from the largest greenhouse gas emitters. We're talking with Am Rabe, who's the uh, Environmental Policy Director for, for NYPIRG, the New York Public Interest Research Group. And on December 28th, they and uh, a number of local elected officials, and I believe some young people, um, held a, a news conference um, to highlight the need for uh, Governor Hochul to include what's the, known as the Climate Superfund Act in the state um, budget. So, Ann, why, why don't you just give us a quick introduction? What is the Climate Superfund Act and why is it important? Well, it's um, a bill that would establish, just like we have for toxic waste dumps, a super fund to clean up toxic waste dumps with industry fees, it would establish a super fund for climate damage repair costs and resiliency and community protection projects related to the climate emergency that we're all in. And it would be funded by big oil companies, the, the big climate crisis contributors, raising $3 billion a year. And, and I believe one of the things is because you're going after the biggest climate producers uh, or contributors, um, you know, many of them are multi-state. And, and so therefore, it would be harder for them to pass the cost on in New York since they sell products in many states. Correct. But it's also a market force. So, you know, the mom and pop gas stations in New York, they go for the lowest bidder. So uh, Sunoco isn't on the list to pay the, the it, their portion share of the $3 billion, but um, ExxonMobil is. Well, ExxonMobil is not going to increase their prices because they're going to lose out to the Sunocos that aren't paying. So it's a market force driven way to not have consumer prices increase because they're paying for their past contributions, their past, their past actions that created the climate crisis and the damages today. Now, one other thing that Nyberg did uh, at this December 28th news conference, you released an analysis showing that New York State taxpayers were um, heavily burdened by over $2 billion in climate costs, basically from December 2022 to December 2023, or $272 per household. What are you actually measuring in that analysis? Yeah, we measure a very narrow database, but it's the only one that's publicly available. Um, so it's an underestimate for sure. $2.1 billion, we call it the taxpayer tally. What I did is I went and looked at a year's worth of Governor Hochul's news releases where she either pledged or um, announced that X million dollars was spent to repair X bridge um, that, you know, was, was um, damaged during uh, an extreme storm, for instance. Um, and I also understand you... Uh had a number of local officials and uh, a number of them wrote a, a, a letter to the Governor Hoka. Why, why the local officials joined in in this effort? The local officials um, in um, this, this uh, organization, the Elected Officials to Protect America, the New York State chapter, a hundred of them signed on to a letter to the governor saying that basically um, they are on the front lines of the climate crisis, their communities, bearing the full weight of its impacts, especially in relation to budget. So they're basically their reserve funds, according to the mayor of Hudson, according to Albany County legislators. Um, they're, they're basically um, on the front lines and they're having to go to their reserve funds to pay for repair, to, to pay for the repair of climate damages. Now, of course, in the Hudson Valley uh, this summer, as in Vermont and even in New York City, <clears throat> there were some, you know, 
once a hundred year, once in a thousand year, you know, flood. And so that obviously, you know, is one of the things that contributes to increased costs, I imagine, for some of these municipalities. Yes, big time. I should mention that Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan, Albany County President Corey Ellis, and the New York City Comptroller Brad Lander are all co-signers of that letter. So more and more local government officials are aware that because Governor Hochul has not established any revenue stream for climate costs, it's all on the taxpayers, on the county and city taxpayers, and on the state taxpayers to pay for billions, really, um, of dollars in relation to climate damages, climate resilience, and community protection, extreme heat programs, that sort of thing. So they're coming out more and more. And, and Dominic Frangello, who's the, um, the co-founder of Elected Officials to Protect America, came out of the fracking, um, anti-fracking movement. Um, he um, spoke and, and basically said, you know, we need big oil to pay now. We need the Climate Superfund to take this burden off the taxpayers. Now, um, perhaps a, a clarification I would would throw out there. I I, I I know that actually, you know, customers do pay a surcharge on their utility bills. I think about six hundred million dollars a year um, to uh, subsidize renewable energy uh, projects in the state, and they also pay perhaps even a larger amount to subsidize um, nuclear power plants. That's something Governor Cuomo pushed through seven point six billion dollars over. I think. Uh, 12 years or so. So this is this is different than funding, say, renewable energy or nuclear power. Exactly. But those are very good points to raise. I mean, basically, the governor has um, done a disservice to all of us by not having an annual budget to implement the Climate Act, the, the law that passed in 2019. So we don't have a good sense of how much climate um, costs we're spending um on all fronts and 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 actually she just vetoed last month a bill passed both houses to require annual climate expenditure publicly released um, annual climate expenditure budget really so, yes she vetoed uh, that very reasonable bill yeah I, I was just actually lobbying the uh new york state's controller um to actually put you know ask what they're supposed to do is what and i said you know i had actually was working for nightbird for the summer and i tried to get um you know some detailed information as to how much the money the new york state was actually spending on renewable energy and no one knew the governor yep. did not know power authority nicer people knew it was in their budget and a lot of their numbers were you know cooked a little bit um, because they said, well, we gave out $500 million to uh, renewable energy projects. Well, that's nice, but those renewable energy projects not coming in line for 12 years or 10 years. How much are you actually uh, spending? So she vetoed that. What, what, what was the rationale for trying to keep hidden? Because she puts out these press releases with these enormous tens of billions of dollars mm -hmm. spending. It's clearly not taxpayer or even public money she's talking about. I no, wish I knew I, she was going to veto that thing. Yeah, well, I have not obtained the veto message yet. I'm also in a quandary, as are many other organizations. I mean, why would you not want the public and government agencies and the legislature to know how what our annual climate expenditures are? 
how can we get how can we get a handle on how to implement the climate act if we don't know how much we're spending now and how much we need to spend in the future well maybe so she she'd be worried that the numbers she put out were quite a bit less than what she's putting out in her press releases so we only got about 2 minutes left now i understand this climate superfund act actually passed the state senate last year I believe senator kruger um is is the champion over there how are things looking both for the governor getting it in the budget and you know is the assembly going to come on board this year well, we hope that both will be occurring. We, we had a great meeting uh, three weeks ago with the governor's top officials. Um, we, as in 27 organizations, um, and we had a really robust conversation. Um, they had questions about implementation. We feel like we've satisfied those questions. I mean, this is not, this is based on a 43 year old successful program, a polluter pay legal principle to clean up, again, toxic waste dumps. Now we're cleaning up climate crisis damages um so implementation is is not is not a, a question it's it's easily easily implemented by the department of environmental conservation with the assistance of the controller's office so we're hopeful the governor is going to include it in her budget and state of the state and we have over 50 assembly co-sponsors um we've had great meetings with a lot of committee chairs and with the speaker's office so we're hopeful but obviously people power is what's going to pass this bill into law and so we urge people to email the governor, go to her website, email the governor to include Climate Change Superfund Act Senate 2129A in her budget. And just to disclose, Hudson Mark Magazine did not take any position one way or other on legislation. Is $3 billion enough? I believe that's the target to raise. Is that enough to deal with the extent of the problem? No, it's a first step. $3 billion out of the estimated $10 plus billion needed annually. First step. Well, and uh, if people want to see your course analysis is on your website, nightperk.org. That's right. Scroll down to the bottom under news and you'll see the, the taxpayer tally links to all the governor's news releases and more information about this important climate budget bill. Thank you very much. Um, Ann Rabe, New York Public Interest Research Group. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So in uh, some other climate news, um, report just came out uh, this week that global warming globally um, last year was 1.4 degrees Celsius, which is almost a 1.5 degrees in which the scientists say we have to keep under in order to avoid really bad extreme weather. So really sort of running out of time with that. And I'll just uh, sort of in the time union that the, the town of Hoosick uh, town board has been here in mountain opposition to large scale uh, solar projects. And they are gonna hold a hearing Wednesday night to establish a year long moratorium on any new plans. However, there was um, a zoning board of appeals approved on Tuesday night four resolutions needed to move forward the proposed 20 megawatt Hawthorne solar array project forward. And so it uh, looks like since that's already in the works, that would not be stalled by a new uh, moratorium. And I'll just mention that a lot of groups in the coming week will be pushing to get the uh, governor to include things first in her state of the state address, which comes out January 9th. And then the following week, January 16th, will be her uh, budget. And of course, us and Mohawk Magazine will be covering both. And for this week's peace segment, 
Mark talked with Judy Quaife of Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace about being banned from the Bethlehem Library following a recent forum the group held there on Gaza. We're talking with uh, Trudy Quaife, who is on Bethlehem's Neighbors for Peace. Uh, she was on recently talking uh, with respect to the December 5th presentation that Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace uh, put together at the local library with uh, Miko Piled, um, who is a Israeli-Palestinian uh, activist, and uh, that caused quite a bit of controversy in the local community. And actually, the the uh, Bethlehem Library Board has now decided that they're going to ban Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace from using the library for a year, allegedly underground, because Miko, after the event, apparently sold a book or two out in his car, which they claim violates uh, the rules. So, so Trudy, why don't you quickly bring us up to speed? What What is the present uh, controversy, and why did Miko's presentation generate uh, such a backlash? Well, it, it's hard to know why this particular uh, event created such a, a backlash. I, I think it's at least partially due to the fact that Israel uh, is at war with Gaza right now. People are very sensitive about that issue. Uh, but that's also the reason that we asked him to come. Uh, a lot of our members are really concerned about um, the war and they would like it to stop. And uh, Miko Pellet has a perspective that you don't get in the mainstream media. And he's a great speaker. He's very well informed. Uh, he was born in Israel. He's the, he was in the military in Israel himself. His father was a general. His grandfather was one of the original signers of um, not the Declaration of Independence, but whatever the original document was in Israel. His grandfather was one of the signers. So um, he, he he's a, a, a really interesting person to have come and talk. And we'd had him before. We had him back in 2018. Another group had also had him. In fact, the other group had him at the Bethlehem Library. And he actually just written a book at that point, And he was selling books. And he was well received both times. Neither time did we have any protesters. So maybe we just go back and get, get a little bit of the history for Bethlehem Neighbors of Peace. Uh, you know, I know them as a well-respected, longtime peace um, group here in the Capital District, um, known for doing, I guess, a weekly visual out at, I believe, the Four Corners area in, in Bethlehem, I believe, Monday Monday evening. But how, how long has Bethlehem Neighbors of Peace been active? Obviously, been active on peace issues, but, you know, what are some of the issues that you've focused on over the years? Well, we've primarily focused on peace. We we formed as a group and became Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace in 2003. So we've been around over 20 years. We started with the vigil in 2004. We decided to go ahead and have a program at the library. Uh, we started thinking about how people didn't really have access to a lot of good information by reading the newspaper. And 2000, thought, okay. 2004 is probably the wars in Iran, um, Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah, yes. it was. That was really what brought us all together as a group. And there were quite a few people in Bethlehem at that time that were really upset about those wars. And, and uh, so it wasn't hard to get 
30 people together to protest at the four corners, even when they first started. And I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I, I saw them out there. I heard them speak. I thought, I, I want to I wanna be part of this group. I was so impressed that they were willing to stand there. So that's when I joined just about 20 years ago. And um, I've been working with them ever since. We've had a program at the library almost once a month for that 20 years, we, we stopped during uh, we stopped during COVID, but pretty much we've continued that. We've covered all sorts of issues, climate change, Black Lives Matter, hydrofracking, healthcare for all. We've had uh, many authors. Um, we've showed various films. We've Julian Assange, you name it. We've probably had a forum about it. If it wasn't at the Bethlehem Library, we had forums also at the Albany Library or the um, Bethlehem Town Hall. So we we thought it was we've always thought it was really important to to be out there in the community offering some kind of educational program. And, and my guess is that you're actually. Bethlehem Neighborhood Peace, probably one of the more active and even larger community groups in, in the town? Well, I'd say, I don't know if we're more active, but we certainly had a pretty sizable membership, especially in the beginning. And I think at the height of our group, we might, might have had a mailing list of maybe 700 people. We're down to about 350 now. But um, to show up now for a vigil, we can have anywhere between five and 20. And if we ask people to come out for a particular reason, we'll get more. Now, now we, we got a little bit under f about four minutes left. So, you know, just reading from the paper, you know, they, they accused Miko um, Pellet, you know, of engaging in hate speech. A lot of that seemed to be, uh, you know, around this common chant you see at all of the Palestinian support rallies, you know, right. from the from the river, you know, to the sea, which is, you know, sort of description of the, you know, I guess Palestinian homeland. I mean, how how would you describe, you know, Miko's, you know, presentation? Did you see any level of hate or anti-Semitism? No, I didn't see any at all. I, I really respect what he says. I think he's very truthful and honest. I think he can back up what he says with facts. I think what was unusual about this is that this group of people had tried to stop the event. The town board had had a meeting uh, to try to uh, give the community an opportunity to voice why they didn't want the event to happen. You mean the library board? The town library board, yes. They had a meeting on the 4th, December 4th. They gave people an opportunity to speak. Uh, almost 100 people spoke mostly against Miko um, Pellet being allowed to speak. But to their, to their credit, the library board decided to let him go ahead, recognizing our First Amendment right. However, some of those people were really not happy. So on the 5th, those, some of those same people showed up and there'd been a lot of publicity over the December 4th meeting. So almost 200 people showed up. We only had room for about 95. So many of those people managed to get into the program and right from the beginning, they tried to shut it down. So uh, there were a few things that Miko said that really upset them. He did use the term from the river to the sea. At that point, the library director came in and tried to stop the program. 
Um, quite a few people were really upset by that. There were, I would say, probably 75% of the people that were there really wanted to hear what he had to say. They were really interested in what he was talking about, but there were just a very few people, maybe five people that decided that they weren't going to let it happen. So they started screaming hate speech and anti-Semitism and various different things to try to stop the program. At one point, the uh, one of the uh, library board members came in and said, uh, there is no legal definition of hate speech. Please let this program continue. And eventually it did continue and it ended, but it had been very contentious the entire time. Um, the agitators, I would call them, we're trying to stop the program the whole time. They were well, well. We only have about ninety seconds left. So they have banned Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace for you know a year, holding yeah. events. Yes. Understand some people are going to show up at the I guess January eighth uh, board meeting and try to tell them this is really you know a restriction on free speech. And, and the last minute or so, if people want to express their opinion at this point. Um, you know, how can they do so? And is there any sense that the library board might be backing down? Uh, there's no sense that the library board might be backing down. Uh, there is a there is a Bethlehem uh, Public Library website. You can uh, you can add your comments on the website. There's a there's a form where you can address the board. The board meets, I think, the first Monday of every month. They're meeting on January eighth. They do allow people to make a three-minute statement at that meeting. So some of this will definitely be there for that. Does the Neighbors of Peace have a website if people want more information about the group? We do. BethlehemNeighborsForPeace.org is our website. We also have an email that goes out weekly. You can get on our email list. We have a Facebook page. We'd love to have more people join us. We're out there every Monday vigiling 4 o'clock in the wintertime, 5 o'clock in the summer. Talking with Trudy Quaver from Bethlehem's Neighbors for Peace, and this has been Mark Dunley with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So advocacy tip 101. If you expect an event to be controversial and it's a small room, get there really early, half hour to 45 minutes if you want to attend. But if you did miss Miko Pilot, uh, who will be in Schenectady January 13th at 3 p.m., um, I believe that's a Saturday, uh, 21 Lansden Road North. Uh, also on Thursday night uh, at 6 p.m. January 4th, uh, there is a vigil being organized by Jewish Voice for Peace and other Palestinian rights committees. Uh, prior to the uh, Common Council meeting, uh, vigils at 6, Common Council meeting at, at 7, and the Common Council is going to be considering whether or not to adopt a Resolution in support of a ceasefire, which is proposed by council members Romero and Adams. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlight. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 105. 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, somebody at your place of worship, 
or that special somebody at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. This next story is from our archives, an interview with Ed Fox, the director of Project SafePoint, looking at harm reduction and the services that they provide. I'm joined in the studio by Ed Fox, director of Project SafePoint. Ed represented Project SafePoint at the July People's Health Sanctuary Healing Day on our campus, and you were interviewed a few times on Hudson Mohawk Magazine previously, so welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here again. So Project SafePoint began in 2008 in response to an unmet need for sterile syringe access and harm reduction services in the capital region. Can you give us a little bit more of information of what was what was 2008 in the capital region like? So I think, you know, um, just for a little context, um, Project SafePoint evolved from um, aid services. Uh, so we were um, aid services in the capital region. So having sort of access to clean syringes, clean marks is ex- obviously extremely important. So working um, around prevention for people with HIV and other diseases, hepatitis C, um, has been a sort of a starting point and you know the need has been in the capital district at that time and it's grown and grown and grown and the need has become more and more and more as we've gone along i think you can sort of look at the you know the opioid uh, crisis we've been experiencing over the last um, couple of decades and you know breaking that down and seeing you know where we fit into that and the need for the services we provide so it began with needle services for AIDS and hepatitis. Is it now focusing primarily on the opioid crisis? Yes. You know, a lot of the people who access, you know, harm reduction services through Project SafePoint, whether that's through special arrangement or through our mobile units or any of the sort of, um, you know, service delivery methods uh, that we provide, are primarily uh, the IV drug use population. Um but we have other services and other, you know, we work with all people who use drugs. I want to be very clear on that. Um, whatever the service looks like, whatever the need is, it's harm reduction. So whatever that looks like for the individual is the service we're going to provide. And you mentioned a couple of those services. Can we go a little bit more into those various ways that uh, you provide care? Yeah, so, you know, I think you can say, like, just build it out a little bit. So we have, you can start with sort of the syringe access, which is, you know, access to clean syringes, works. Um, You know, we do testing, HIV, hepatitis C, rapid testing, very important where people know, like, where they're at, their status. We do overdose prevention, which is a huge part of what we do. We do, like, community training for people. We have done for a very, very long time. Thankfully, I can say that there is a lot more access to naloxone and overdose prevention services in our communities now. Um, But for a long time, it wasn't as readily accessible. So, you know, doing those trainings was, you know, an opportunity for us to have uh, conversations with the community and with with our people, with the people who are accessing our services, um, it was always a way to sort of educate and, you know, bring awareness. Uh, so, you know, we do, you know, provide overdose prevention. Um, we work with people in systems. Uh, it's a big part of what we do. Um, sometimes we recognize we work with people post-overdose. Maybe it's the emergency room. Maybe it's incarcerated people. So, you know, we have a program, re- you know, around reentry for people who are on the MOUD programs 
which is great news and I'm always happy to bring sort of like, you know, exciting changes, um, you know, to anybody who's out there listening, um, you know, people who are incarcerated, you know, with suffering from substance use disorder have access now to medication while incarcerated. So, you know, we access people in Renster County Jail and, you know, try to sort of work around their sort of release plan, what it's going to look like for them when they post-incarceration um so we provide all services whether again whatever that looks like it might be you know a little housing support it might be a little bit of case management it might be you know whatever the need might be um so that's a service uh, we you know work around excuse me disease prevention uh, we have a we call it the patient navigation program which works with people with hepatitis c because we see a huge increase in hepatitis c throughout new york state and there has been a significant push from the state of New York to sort of address this. Uh, so, you know, we walk people through like hepatitis C treatment. You know, we do the testing, but we also, you know, walk them through the treatment as well. Obviously, we have, you know, various forms of case management, like low access, uh, sort of, you know, just, you know, light touch like that. But, you know, we do provide medication ourselves. We have a, you know, buprenorphine clinic, um, you know, low barrier. It's a bridge clinic. Uh, so if someone is, you know, needing, you know, medication for a period, we will we have a, out, some outstanding harm reduction providers that actually uh, provide this service uh, uh, for people who need access to, like, medication, buprenorphine in particular. We have a hotline as well. Um, you know, the hotline has various roles. Um, the hotline, you know, we take calls from individuals that are looking for our services or, you know, maybe we get a call around an overdose. So we have sort of emergency responders call somebody overdosed in the city of Albany. We will try to reach out to Schenectady you know, we will try to reach out to that individual and offer the services, maybe it's Narcan, maybe it's safety planning, maybe it's something more, maybe it's case management, maybe it's detox, maybe it's like a variety of different um, needs at that time. And, you know, we're there and we're ready to sort of provide those services in, you know, in the moment as needed. People's Health Sanctuary is built on the model of community health care. You did mention that you have community training specifically for Narcan use. How do you see the role of community health care, community first reacting to uh, people's needs in the community? I mean, it's extremely important, of course. Like your community is, you know, where it all starts, your community needs, looking at them, addressing them, bringing the community together. A lot of the challenges for us is like based around stigma and, you know, around the stigma that people, you know, who use drugs, they face all the time. And it's important to be able to have like community buy-in and support um, and recognizing like the different communities and the different needs of the different communities and how that looks. So how something might look here and where we're sitting here in Troy, New York, is maybe slightly different than the community um, sitting in Cobleskill, New York. So it's like recognizing that and being able to have those conversation with conversations with community members uh, in order to sort of deliver services and open minds and eliminate stigma in as best a way as we possibly can, because that is a huge contributor to the many, many fatalities we're um, experiencing have been experiencing um for a long long time now now this next question we recognize is is too large to get into right now the 
a term abolitionist medicine addresses the racism which is embedded in our healthcare system. It recognizes that police violence has devastating health consequences. It recognizes the role that police play in drug management. So that's too large to get into right now, but an example of decriminalization, uh, many people look to Portugal as an example, um, which has decriminalized drug use, including heroin, cocaine, people still being penalized for the use and possession, but they're no longer being incarcerated for it. How do you, what's your take on this model? Uh, and would it be a, would it be something that you could see happening in our country? I am very familiar, obviously, and that that is a, a successful, um, successful model. Um, you know, it has been in place for you know some time. I think I do want to reference Portland, Oregon, as well in this country. Um, you know, when we're talking in this model, um, so Portugal is doing well. Um, I think that's you know a bottom line around that. You know, our programs like really do work with everybody. We work with law enforcement, we work with hospital systems, we work with all different systems because we recognize the need to have buy-in from all of the systems in order to be able to sort of, because, you know, you mentioned, you know, that this is a very large subject and, you know, a lot more time than than we have here uh, today. Um, There's a lot of work to be done before we get to that place here in this country. I mean, we keep working together uh, to sort of like, keep the conversations going you know when you asked earlier about the community buy-in this is the community buy-in it's bringing the community together to start like think about what might work what it looks like for your community if you try this maybe this is the response you'll get like these sort of conversations are the way to get buy-in and be able to sort of change the narrative and address the shocking numbers of overdoses and overdose fatalities we're seeing it's so dramatic and continues to be the case so we we continue to do the work to try to change the narrative well ed fox from project safe point it's been wonderful to have you here unfortunately we've run out of time but um before we let you go where can we find more information about project safe point and what else should listeners know because we do have a hotline, I do want to share that uh, number with everybody out there. It's, you know, it's a 24-7 hotline. Um, it's 1-866-930-4999. And all of our, you know, our services are accessible through that hotline. You know, our main office is in Albany. We cover 12 counties uh, surrounding the capital region, and we're readily available in those counties. Uh, so, you know, please, if anyone you know, knows anyone that may be, you know, needing our services, interested in our service, wanting more information, you know, please reach out. Um, and we're happy to talk to anybody, work with anybody. Our thing is the more people know, the more we'll be able to change the conversation. You know, the services is there for the community. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I have a friend who's an emergency medical technician for the Troy Fire Department, and he says little he's done well over 100 uh, interventions with Narcon, you know, in recent years. And I couldn't quite find the data for 2023, but it looks like Rensselaer County alone was close to 100 deaths, uh, overdose deaths uh, 
2023. So that was Ed Fox, Director of Project uh, SafePoint Harm Reduction Services, and their hotline is 1-866-930-4999. And next, Marshall Lazarus brings us a story with Pilar Arthur Sneed about the challenges that Black ultramarathon runners face. After I ran my first half marathon, which was the Mohawk Hudson half marathon, then I actually happened to be watching the New York City marathon. And the runner, the female runner who won that year was Mary Katani. And to see this Black woman blazing fast, 26.2 miles, I was just like, my mind is blown that she did that. That inspired me. And I knew when I saw her cross the finish line, I knew that I wanted to run the New York City Marathon. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Marsha Lazarus. I'm sitting with Capital Region resident and ultra marathon runner and run coach, Pilar Arthur Sneed. So we're outside the running season, at least here in Troy, New York. But that has not kept the Albany BGR Black Girls Run from honoring you at their annual celebration last month. How about starting with learning a bit about BGR? Black Girls Run is a national running organization. Um, Started probably about 10 or 15 years ago. And really the mission of BGR is just to get women of color, Black women out and moving their bodies because um, Black women do have a higher incidence of um, things like high cholesterol, diabetes, heart attacks, stroke, all of these various health conditions which exercise can either, you know, it can in some cases help to completely eliminate it and in other cases, it really does help minimize the amount of medications that they may be having to take. So it really is a great organization for just getting Black women out of the pavement. And it's and we like to say within the group that it's not just a run group, but it's a sisterhood. And um, I think that that is really true. So, you know, I understand how you have run in a lot of spaces and places where Black women are typically absent. Correct. Does this mean that running is not a common sport for women of color, for Black women? That's a a really great question. There is a woman, her name is Allison Desir, and she just recently wrote a book called Running While Black. And in this book, it chronicles sort of the history of running over you know, time and and the parallels of what was going on for Black people specifically in America. So while the while running was experiencing this boon and people are starting to to run all over the country simultaneously during that time, Black people are being literally oppressed, <laughs> right? So we have segregation and it's not you know, we know it's not until 1960-something, 64, when the civil rights movement really starts to 
to take up, to take up and and officially you know segregation some of those things of segregation fall fall away and then also right up until the late 1950s early 1960s women in general white women black women were not able to participate in sports in a formal fashion they could do it sort of in a club way um so you have all of these things that were created that were legal barriers to people of color, women, women of color participating in sports. So it's not to say that running is not a, a space for black people. Running is not a space for um, black women. It's just that there are a lot of barriers that have have already had to be overcome for people of color to participate in the sport at all. The fact of the matter is, is that we are here, we are participating. Some of the barriers that can uh, that can exist are that if you go to a trail race, and and I experienced this myself, I was going to a race out in, in Utah, of all places. Utah is not known for being the most welcoming place for people of color. So hey, I'm traveling alone by myself to this new place, I have no idea what the people are going to be like when I get there. No idea. So you, if you don't really know what it's going to be like when you get to a place and you don't know whether or not you're going to be welcomed, whether or not people are going to treat you poorly just simply based on the color of your skin, that's pretty nerve wracking on top of all of the things that you need to do to just plan to get there. I know you're also part of a BIPOC running team. It's Dirt Dirtbags Run Team and or um, we just got not-for-profit status and I believe our not-for-profit name is We Run Long. Is there a difference when you're running as an individual versus running as part of a team of colleagues and I'm assuming mm-hmm. friends? Can you feel the difference? When you show up with a group of people who have had similar shared experiences and they kind of understand where you might be feeling fear. They understand that like this space that you're in, this trail running space, this race, this whatever was not necessarily built for you, but you can bring all of that family, you know, comfort together completely different experience. Our first race together was just purely magical. Pilar, you are also a professional photographer. Yes, I was. <laughs> I don't know that I am now. <laughs> okay. But in, in 2009, you, you opened a gallery in a studio and you ran this business up until I, I believe 2020. Correct. Yep. Till right up till COVID times. In other words, you were self-employed for about 11 years. And having been self-employed myself, I know it, it it takes a lot, a lot of energy, long hours, also a lot of self-confidence. Did this lead in some way to your passion for running? Is there a connection? In a tangential way, as I was finishing my graduate work, my MFA, I, my uh, master's of fine art project was a project where I did a series of um, nudes that co-opted the images that we typically would see in um, 
museum environment. It was a white woman who was pictured and the slave woman who is depicted behind her who is serving her. So I took images like this and I put myself in the in the place of the main character and photographed myself as that person. Because if you look throughout history, some of these images that you see, you don't typically, again, you don't typically see Black women who are posed this, this way. The person who is beautiful, the person who is to be looked at, the person who's, who is receiving the gaze in a in a in a positive way it was this this project that i started to see myself because i ha i had never been told that i was a beautiful person my parents told me from the time i was yay high to a grasshopper because of the fact that you're black you'll have to work harder you'll have to do better and you'll have to show people through your accomplishments that you are something i think that this is these are words that probably every black parent says in some way to their child, I grew up believing that because I was Black, I was ugly. Nobody could um, think that my accomplishments were worth anything. So that project allowed me to start to see myself differently. And from there, I went into running. I was intrigued by your saying, you become inspired to inspire others. I think that my whole run career has really been that way. Initially, when I first started running, I was starting to evaluate like, is this the life that I want to live for myself? Is everything that I've been told about who I am, what I'm capable of, is it all true? So I decided to, you know, sign up for a 5K race. And then, you know, during that training process, my coach said to me, you know, one day you're going to be running half marathons and you're going to be running marathons. And I was just like, yeah, I can't even run a mile right now. But like that one statement of like, you could probably do more than what you're doing now, even though you're not doing it now, had a pretty big impact the whole time while I was training for the marathon, and even as I was running the marathon, I didn't think I could do it. I didn't believe that I could do it. And then when I crossed the finish line, I'm crying like so crazy because I'm just like, everything that I had thought about myself, everything that I believed, everything I had been told, just completely was like, just, blown into a million pieces. Like I never knew I could do that thing. So that part I think is the part that inspires other people because then they say, well, I mean, if she could do that, I could probably do that too. And it just keeps going and going and going. It's experiencing that it's possible and seeing that it's possible. Correct. Very and powerful. by someone, by someone who looks like you. So I feel compelled to mention that a good friend of mine, Dr. Alice Green, uh, is a marathon runner, uh, even in her 70s. But as an African-American civil rights activist, Dr. Green's always been willing to be a trailblazer. Uh, that was Marcia Lazarus talking with Pillar Arthur Sneed about the challenges that black ultra marathon runners face. That was part one. We'll be having... Part two uh, with uh, Arthur Sneed 
later this week. And we end our program tonight with a water song and words of peace from John Amidon at the recent New Year New Year's Day Peace Walk around Troy. a prayer for the protection of water and of course as we ourselves are made of mostly water the water runs through us we are the water the water is us you want that walk? yeah <laughs> we gotta walk Sun Yasuda, the Japanese Buddhist nun of the Graft and Peace Pagoda, led a New Year's Day interfaith peace walk for no more killings and no more war. from Auschwitz to Hiroshima. One year's walk. One year's worth of walking. So this walk is a baby walk. So this walk is a baby walk compared to that. So another walk, we are walking almost 30 years ago. Another walk, we've been walking 30 years ago. From Panama to Washington, D.C. From Panama to Washington, D.C. Ago. Almost one year ago. So this is a baby walk. So this is still a baby walk. <laughs> so anyway, even baby walk, I'm tired. 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'd like to introduce my friend, veteran for peace. She is one of veteran for peace people. He was walk part of our 
Auschwitz to Hiroshima, walking in there. So John also walked from Auschwitz to Hiroshima. In India. In India. Also Panama to Washington DC walk. Also on the Panama to Washington DC walk. I, I first met Jun-san in Nicaragua. He first met Jun-san in Nicaragua. Even though we live 30 miles apart here. Even though they only live 30 miles apart here. And she has been a blessing in my life. She has been a blessing in his life. The, the walks have been uh, profoundly moving. The walks have been profoundly moving. As this one today has been also. As this one today has been also so much for everyone to do whatever they can for peace. We need everyone to do whatever they can for peace. And as a veteran who unfortunately was misled by my country. And as a veteran who was unfortunately misled by my country. I really want all of the parents here today. I really want all of the parents here today their children not to participate in war or join the military. To teach their children not to participate or join in the military. I, I also want to thank, thank you all for being here on behalf of, of my personal transgressions. He wants to thank all of you for being here upon behalf of his personal transgressions. I realized that I was part of a terrorist organization for four years. He realizes he was part of a terrorist organization for four years. And it is something I worked to atone for. And it is something he works to atone for. And thank you, thank you so much. And thank you so much. Please talk to each other, learn from each other, grow from each other. And that was John Amidon speaking at the New Year's Day uh, Peace Walk. You also heard from Junsan Yasudo, uh, the Japanese Buddhist nun uh, from the Grafton Peace Pagoda, and from Christoph de Maria, who amplified what was being said. Uh, Sino also uh, did a segment uh, that you can find on mediacentury.org from the first part of the uh, New York Day's Peace Walk. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. I'm Mark Dunley. I want to thank our engineer, Joan Eason, as well as all the volunteers who made this show possible, with a special thank to Marcia Lazarus for uh, her t contribution today. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual, individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.